Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont's schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman has long been pondering a run for Vermont governor. This week, he made it official, announcing that he would run to replace Governor Phil Scott, who is widely assumed will run for a third term this November. Zuckerman will run as a progressive-slash-Democrat, and he will first have to win a primary against former Education Secretary Rebecca Holcomb, who announced her candidacy for governor last year. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we will spend the hour talking with Lieutenant Governor Lieutenant Governor Zuckerman. I recorded my interview with Zuckerman yesterday. David Zuckerman, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Well, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. So why are you running for governor? Well, it's a, a something I've been thinking about for many months now. Uh, it's a challenging juggle to consider running and serving as governor. It's a, a more than full-time job. And my spouse and my family and my farm are very important to me. So I was struggling with the decision. But when it came down to it, uh, the challenges that Vermonters are facing, working class Vermonters in particular, uh, has have not really been addressed. There's been a lot of talk about affordability, but we haven't really done a lot about uh, raising their wages, uh, saving people money through much more robust weatherization of their homes to reduce their fuel bills. Uh, and this administration hasn't really tackled those issues uh, with the vision that we need. And in particular, uh, the urgency of our climate crisis. As this fall rolled on and we went from uh, actually a reasonably nice summer after a very bizarre spring, uh, it suddenly the temperature dropped tremendously in ways that it didn't used to do. Uh, then we had reports coming out of uh, international research organizations saying the climate crisis is happening even faster than we expected. Uh, we've got young people pleading for us to do something. And as I look back over the last three years and even beyond that, uh, we have not tackled the challenges of our climate future in the way that we need to. Uh, the governor put together a uh, climate task force, came up with 54-odd proposals back in his first year. Almost none of those have had the leadership from the administration to then carry out and execute to uh, build our economy for a resilient future. But even more than that, build an economy on that future uh, that we can live in with uh, a robust green economy. We can put people to work weatherizing homes. We can put people to work stringing broadband and then creating jobs in our rural areas where people don't have to drive 10, 20, or 50 miles to get to work. We can exploit the fact in our rural areas that we live close to the big urban centers to our south. With that connectivity, we could create jobs that people would want uh, either to stay living here or to attract people, as we've been trying to do. Uh, And we've just seen a lot of rhetoric uh, and a lot of words that have not really then been carried out in action. I want to give an example of that. Uh, In the governor's speech, he appropriately talked about the struggle of our rural areas with respect to population. But the way it was framed is that that's because our government is too big or, um, you know, these are challenges because we're a blue state with our blue state policies. Uh, he didn't use those words, but that was the insinuation. When you actually look at the statistics, rural areas all across the country are hollowing out, particularly ever since the Great Recession in 2008. Urban areas are doing well. 
the exurban or the sort of surrounding areas are doing reasonably well, and rural areas are hollowing out. We've experienced that in Vermont. Uh, Burlington's doing reasonably well. Mind you, there's a big investment in broadband, and we have incredible businesses that came to Vermont because of Burlington Telecom. And then the areas around Burlington, uh, South Burlington, the rest of Chittenden County uh, are doing relatively well, and even the counties around Chittenden County are doing better than the rest of the state. But we don't have the big city. Let's not kid ourselves. Burlington is not a major, major city in this country. And so we have to tackle our rural challenges and our economic challenges in a way that fits Vermont. And it isn't just by sitting on the sidelines talking about the problems. It's about really going out there and investing in a rural economy uh, through broadband, through weatherizing our old homes, uh, through broadening our agricultural product opportunities, and and really selling our, our products to this southern New England market in a more aggressive way. Governor Phil Scott has uh, run and won two elections uh, based largely on the promise of making Vermont more affordable. Has he kept his promise? Well, I think it's, uh, it is affordable for those who are wealthy, but it is not affordable for those who are struggling working class people paycheck to paycheck. And I have not seen their wages go up in the way that would make their lives more affordable. When you talk about affordability in Vermont, there's two sides to the equation. You've got the expenses side, you know, our housing, our transportation, our heating, our energy costs, our food. And then you've got your, your, your income side. And when you look at the expense side, uh, Vermont actually is about average when it comes to uh, New England and the Northeast with respect to expenses. We have winters. Other parts of the country don't. That does mean things are more expensive. Down where my mom lived in Virginia, they had to repave the roads every 12 or 15 years. You know, It costs more because of, of cold weather paving and maintaining roads here. There are just some built-in costs. However, uh, when it comes to uh, incomes, we're not average. We're 18% below the regional average. And that's what makes the affordable crisis very real for most people. That's why things like raising the minimum wage, methodically, no one's talking about $15 in a year next year. If you do it incrementally over a, a few years, businesses like mine uh, will be able to make the adjustments partly because people have more money to buy our products as well as uh, then be able to afford paying our employees more. Um, so you've got to do it methodically, but we have to do it at a rate faster than inflation. Otherwise, Vermont's not going to get more affordable for those struggling Vermonters. These are the in-depth conversations that don't work in sound bites, uh, that don't work um, you know, through just willy-nilly. It takes effort. It takes leadership and it takes execution to really improve the affordability for average Vermonters. You've described the national phenomenon of the hollowing out of the rural areas, the declining populations in rural areas that is not unique to Vermont, um, and also the global issue of climate change. These are huge, intractable, uh, big trends. How does our small state and one governor uh, make a difference in those well, no doubt. I mean, I think we can go down the, the direction of, you know, each one of us is so small, we can't make a difference um, mentality. Uh, I think Vermont has always have made a bigger difference than our size. Uh, we are moral leaders in this country. We are ingenuitive leaders in this uh, country or entrepreneurial leaders in this country, uh, whether it's John Deere. Uh, you know, we can go through history and all the different ways Vermont has been a leader. And I think through our community spirit, uh, through our ingenuity, through our hard work, our willingness to put our backs and arms into the work as well as our minds, we can come up with creative solutions. And we've been doing that, you know. Old homes are both a challenge and an opportunity. You know, you know weatherizing 50,000 homes uh, is a lot of jobs. And if we uh, invest our money in doing that, we not only will create jobs for a good number of years, we also will be making folks' lives more affordable. You lower people's heating bills, you lower their energy bills, uh, they have more money to spend in the local economy. You know, we have to start thinking about what are we buying and where are we buying it from? If we buy things online instead of buying from our local stores, it might save us a few cents here and there, but it suddenly cost our kid the ability to have a job who would otherwise be bringing home some money. So you might save 50 cents or a dollar or two dollars on something you buy online, but now that job that your kid would have bringing home 200 bucks a week is gone. Which is the better way to go? We have to have these real conversations. Uh, and 
you know, I think it's going to be one step at a time, one investment at a time. Uh, and then the advantage we have, again, compared to some of these other rural areas, whether it's rural Nebraska, Wyoming, uh, Alabama, it doesn't matter what state you want to name. Uh, we are within a few hours of Boston, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, one of the richest parts of the world in terms of resources to buy our high-quality products. We've always been known for producing high-quality product that we put our, our not just our time and energy into, but we put our heart and soul into, and we produce quality products that last. We can exploit that with that marketplace to our south. We do it with our food. Uh, we've done it some with our milk. I think we could do it more so with our milk by really branding our Vermont milk and really boosting that opportunity instead of commodity products, getting a named product that, that uh, folks would pay a little premium to buy. Um, we could do it through uh, bringing the underground cannabis system above board. Uh, for those that don't know, Vermont is actually well regarded, whether we like it or not, uh, for some high quality uh, cannabis products. Uh, Vermont, Colorado, Alaska, parts of California. We're one of the, the top uh, quality producers east of the Mississippi. While we're missing the train, it has le- it's leaving the station. Uh, Vermont could bring the underground market above ground and build our rural economy and some with that. Broadband in our rural areas. It's going to take a lot of different steps to rebuild our rural economy, but our proximity to the marketplace gives us a distinct advantage from other states. Are you willing to raise revenues to, uh, you know, move some of these programs forward? I am. Uh, I think it's really important that, again, we don't get caught up in the rhetoric of no taxes or all taxes, which is the way that uh, politics, unfortunately, often works. Uh, If you look back in Vermont's history, not that long ago, a Republican governor raised taxes on the wealthiest Vermonters because our state needed those resources to care for our most vulnerable and to invest in our future. What I'm asking right now is the opportunity to say to our wealthier Vermonters, would you contribute for three to five years a little bit more of your pay income uh, towards investing in our economic future? The broadband infrastructure, the weatherization infrastructure, affordable housing so people can afford to live and work in our, in our state, and frankly, not just live and work. People deserve the opportunity to play and be with their families. If we have good enough paying jobs and folks don't have to commute an hour to work every day or at least do that in their own car, if they could do it in a bus, they could get other work done so that they could have more time with their families and be the communities and the families that we deeply value, then I think it's worth that investment. And I'm okay asking wealthier Vermonters, and we'll see whether Vermonters across the board want that to happen. But um, how, how, do you, how do you define wealthier Vermonters? Well, I think the devil's in the details, and I certainly still have to crunch some numbers. But uh, when you look at the Trump tax cuts that just were passed, uh, supposedly across the board, Vermonters were going to save about $500 million in taxes each year uh, over these next five years. Uh, What I'm talking about is that top couple of percent that are actually going to benefit with almost half of that savings and say, would you would you be willing to put some of that into Vermont? Don't put it all back into Wall Street. So uh, it might be the top two or three, maybe 5% of Vermonters. We're talking folks making over a couple hundred, two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 and saying, would you be able to afford $500 more a year or $1,000 more a year? The uber wealthy, you know, those in the half million, three quarters of a million per year, they might be asked to pay a little bit more than that 500 or 1000 But again, if you're making $700,000 a year, I think you could probably afford five or ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars for a limited few years to invest in our in our state, in our economy, in the infrastructure of our state. One of the things I want to make really clear is that there there's taxing for operational expenses, and there's taxing for investment in our future and capital expenses. And I'm talking about that second thing. If we raise taxes to start new programs, then you you sort of are stuck. You can't then drop those taxes back down because those programs would no longer have a funding source. But if we raise taxes to weatherize homes, to build affordable housing, to invest in broadband, those investments are going to last far longer than after the taxes then end. Uh, So we have to talk about our tax system in an honest way and not just broad, no new taxes. Well, what people get when they buy into that is new fees, New nickels and dimes left and right, your hunting license, your driver's license, your camping license at our state parks, your entry fees to our state parks, all those different nickels and dimes, your business permits, those all go up when people buy into the no taxes at all rhetoric. Because in the end, the stuff has to get paid for. 
And so when you buy into the no taxes at all rhetoric, it ends up actually hurting working class people and hurting our small businesses more because they get nickeled and dimed instead of looking at taxes where the taxes used to be from, which is our wealthiest folks. I'd love to add to that, uh, which is that at the federal level, we've seen our marginal tax rates, again, those taxes on those highest incomes, dropped ever since Reaganomics. The idea of trickle down. Well, has anybody seen that really be successful? It hasn't been. Uh, The wealthiest people have seen their incomes explode, their wealth explode over these last 40 years, and working people are struggling just like they were before, if not worse. And so if you look back at the roaring, you know, 20s and you look back at the 50s, which supposedly is when America was great, never mind redlining, uh, other racist political policies and so forth. But even if you just strictly look at the economy for white people, the 50s, which is when this president, you know, wants to hark back to, even with all its racism, which he also does, the marginal tax rate was as high as 91%. And yet rich people accumulated wealth and we had the money to build the interstate highway system. We had the money to electrify our rural areas. We had the money to expand telephone lines into our rural areas. If you purely rely on capitalist thinking, then rural people are going to get the short stick every single time because capitalism fundamentally works with concentrations of people and concentrations of product purchasing and and selling. And it is not cost effective to expand our economy into our rural areas because there's not enough people out there. So you have to work together. Um, And that's the social democracy that, uh, you know, presidential candidate, our own Senator Bernie Sanders is talking about. And it's really time, I think, for our seniors to look back at when they were kids in the 50s at how the economy worked. And it worked well because we invested in our economy by taxing our wealthier folks and asking them, part of your wealth is derived from public investment. Let's make that public investment again so everybody can thrive. That's the question. We'll see what people think about it. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're spending the hour this week with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, who announced this week that he is running for governor against uh, Governor Phil Scott, assuming Governor Scott formally announces that he is running for governor, which is the general assumption. Um, and there's let, a primary. To be honest, there's also a primary. Uh, Rebecca Holcomb is running in the Democratic primary as well uh, to take on Governor Scott. And I you know, expect folks to listen to both of us and, and uh, hear our different ideas and thoughts and think about who you think might have the better chance of uh, beating Phil Scott if you like uh, one of our opinions more than the other. But I do want to make sure we don't, we don't jump the gun and just go into uh, the general election. There is a, a, a real primary as well. Thank you. And how do you distinguish yourself from Rebecca Holcomb, the former education secretary? Well, you know, Rebecca is uh, extraordinarily smart. Uh, she's out there working really hard. Uh, give her a lot of credit. She's done a lot, you know, has an incredible career in the educational field from being a teacher to an administrator to working as secretary of education. Uh, and I hope folks will listen to her uh, and hear what she has for solutions and ideas. Um, we hopefully will both grow from the things we learned from each other. Uh, I would say that um, Vermont historically um, wants to get a sense of who you are before putting you into positions of authority in state government. Uh, and I think it'll be a, a, it's a bigger hill for her to climb, getting to know people all across the state, not having run a couple times statewide or not having served as I did in the Senate and the House, really working on issues and seeing how do you work with people across the political aisle to get issues done. And, you know, I have... Um, put my neck out there on a number of issues from GMOs and labeling of GMOs to giving people autonomy at the end of their lives and be able to be with their families and make their own decisions at the end of life, to raising the minimum wage, uh, to uh, as chair of agriculture committee, uh, creating and working, well, I didn't create, working with a committee to really usher through a farm to school and really rebuild that connection between our food systems and our schools. You know, I have a track record of working with Vermonters all across the state to take their ideas get their voices incorporated into the system so that we can get these bills and ideas passed into law. You know, I was introducing marriage equality in 2005 or six, I think it was, when everyone said, we can't do that yet. We just did civil unions. And I said, part of passing this in the future is around having something to organize around. And I really bring an organizing mentality to the offices that I've held. And part of organizing is, is, is essentially defined as working with people all over the state to build the momentum to get these important issues passed. Uh, and so 
that's something that I've got a tremendous amount of experience doing as a House member, as a senator, now as lieutenant governor, of really trying to bring people into the process and re-engaging our democracy uh, in a way that our president is, frankly, working in the opposite direction of division, of um, being angry, of vilifying people. I think what we need to do is remind ourselves democracy is about people, not about money and corporate donations. Uh, I I don't know about uh, what uh, Rebecca Holcomb's plan is. I won't be taking any corporate donations. I never have. Uh, I was inspired by Bernie back in 1992 to volunteer for his campaign. And uh, and I met folks who had great ideals, great work ethic. Uh, that's what got me engaged in the political process at all. Uh, and certainly having those same values and keeping those issues front and center, like no corporate donations to to then become elected and be able to represent the people uh, is something that I bring to the table. So, uh, you know, I also, again, I don't know all of uh, uh, my opponent's experiences uh, through her life, but uh, I also run a small business. I'm a farmer in Heinsburg. We employ five year-round employees. We've got uh, usually between five and eight seasonal employees. Uh, we're selling product direct to consumers as well to, as to stores. Uh, so marketing, I'm experienced with employee relationships, uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. You know, you, you make mistakes over time and you, you learn about how to make sure to treat your employees better, uh, how to find ways to pay them and as best you can. Um, I'm familiar with those struggles and those small business struggles. So I bring this range of experience that I think would uh, suit me well to go up against the governor and uh, and potentially be the governor of the state of Vermont. You mentioned money in politics. It's a bigger factor than at any other time uh, in running for office than, than you've run, and you've been running for office for many years. Um, what do you think it's going to take in terms of fundraising? And how does being a progressive slash Democrat, uh, how's that going to affect that? Well, a couple things. Uh, you know, you never know exactly what it's going to take. You do your best to raise the resources you need, uh, but many past races have been uh, close to a million dollars in individual donations and, and campaigns to run for this office. Then there's the whole outside money thing, which is another challenge. Um, I think there's a real problem there with negative attack ads from people that want to support you in your bid. I would hope that uh, whoever's out there that wants to help or hinder the cause um, would do it in ways that are respectful and positive, the way that uh, Governor Scott has carried himself, uh, Rebecca Holcomb has carried herself, my last uh, opponent, Don Turner and I both, I think, uh, respected each other and and agreed that we would try to run positive campaigns about each other. And um, so all of those things are factors that play into it. Uh, Being a progressive slash Democrat, I I don't think is a a hindrance to being able to raise funds. Uh, It's been clear that I'm a small donor oriented fundraiser. I think being a, a progressive populist uh, is, a, is actually a benefit in this regard right now, particularly. Uh, you're seeing it with Senator Sanders all across the country uh, being the most prolific fundraiser and not hosting these high-dollar fundraisers. I mean, the, the general population both across the country and specifically in Vermont, uh, I think, prefer the uh, progressive small donor, non-corporate fundraising tactics that say, you know, every dollar counts. We know that it's hard for everyday folks to give three, five, twenty dollars, and we're going to value that money. We're going to use it as effectively and efficiently as possible. Uh, we're also going to run a campaign that's people oriented. We're going to get out there uh, talking with people at their stores, at their you know town dumps, at their community meetings, uh, at their at their you know young folks attending universities, uh, getting them involved in the political process. We're welcoming young people uh, into the state house every week. I know that, and this is not as a campaign. This is as Really, how I've seen my job as lieutenant governor is to welcome people into the state house, get young people involved in the political process, find their voice to make the changes that are necessary. And we're seeing young people coming out in droves around their future. Uh, and our, frankly, it's our present and future at this point. Uh, they are afraid for their future. I met a young woman at the farmer's market the other day who said uh, she's really thinking about not having children because of the world those children would grow up in. If we want to talk about having young people in the state And our own young people who are coming into childbearing age are saying, I don't want to have kids with this future on our planet. That certainly is going to doom the ability to to boost our population. Let's let's give an opportunity of hope to our younger people, to our childbearing, you know, from 18 to 35 folks who are going to be thinking about having kids over the next 10 and 20, 15 years. uh, I hope that they want to have kids. Um, 
that means tackling these issues. And I think if we focus on issues, uh, folks will give and support that and will support the opportunity for me to be governor. We're going to take a short break here for the news. We're spending the hour this week with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, who's announced that he is running for governor uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, So right after the news, we'll be back with more questions for Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. I'm David Goodman. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. Stay tuned. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman is brought to you by Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation, Green Mountain Power, Concept2, Norwich Solar Technologies, The Alchemist Brewery, Let's Grow Kids, UVM Medical Center, and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. We continue our hour-long conversation with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman. He announced this week that he is officially going to be running for governor. He will be trying to unseat incumbent Governor Phil Scott on the assumption that he runs. Uh, He first faces uh, fellow Democrat uh, Education Secretary Rebecca Holcomb. Uh, We recorded this conversation with David Zuckerman yesterday. Tell us a little bit about the education of David Zuckerman, a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you came to politics. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, we don't often get into that sort of thing when you're talking about issues and, and the, the reality that people are struggling with. Um, I grew up uh, outside of Boston. Uh, I ultimately moved to Vermont uh, to go to the University of Vermont. Uh, but I was, I was certainly very fortunate in that uh, I grew up in a stable household, uh, one house my whole life growing up, which this day and age is not particularly common. Um, my mom uh, had grown up in the Boston area. Uh, she actually had a, a PhD in biochemistry back in the 60s, uh, which was uh, fairly early for women to be getting that kind of degree. Uh, and she was uh, on our school board growing up. So um, sort of school politics and politics in general were we're certainly talked about in our household, um, and I know that uh, that helps frame. You know, when you talk about privilege and opportunity, uh, being aware of how the system works and how to engage the system, uh, those are privileges that that most people don't have. Uh, and we're in a society in a day and age right now where I think it's important to recognize our privileges and the doors they open and the opportunities they lead to. Um, she also was an avid gardener, I and mean, we had a huge garden growing up. And uh, every night, uh, you know, along with having chores in the garden during the day, every night uh, we were told, you know, oh, it's dinner time. Go pick some beans. Go dig some potatoes. Go grab a couple ears of corn. Uh, you know, get some lettuce or spinach and tomato for salad. Uh, and so that also, I think, shaped some of who I am, given uh, that I've gone into farming and um, eating food and healthy food. Uh, some of the practices she used, I, I do not use. Uh, there were... Some of the corn seed were pink, if I remember, uh, coated with a, with a, a probably a pesticide um, of some sort, and uh, you know, so there's things that that uh, I do differently. Um, but she was a huge influence uh, in sort of who I've ultimately become. And then my father uh, was a medical doctor. Um, unfortunately, he passed away uh, just after I turned 13, and when I was in eighth grade, uh, he actually suffered from. Um, sort of an occupational hazard, we think. There's nothing proven. There's no research done. But uh, he was uh, a cardiothoracic surgeon, helped put in the first, uh, was on the team that put in the first on-demand pacemakers uh, that are now used all over the world, saving millions of people's lives every year. Um, uh, It's allowed for pacemakers to be, you know, sort of wafer thin as opposed to big, thick battery packs that used to exist before they were on-demand. Um, but in, in but in putting those in three, four, five times a day, um, they were exposed to a lot of radiation uh, because of the system of, of medicine able to look inside your body while you're doing the work. Um, and they didn't know then to wear the lead vests that doctors now wear when they do these kinds of procedures. And he ended up with uh, widespread cancer throughout his abdomen. And so that had a profound effect on my life. I was extremely close to my dad. I used to go to the hospital with him on the weekends just to be able to spend time with him. And I remember how he cared for patients and uh, talked with people who were, you know, struggling with ailments near the end of their life that sometimes weren't really operable or where he would say, you know, you can get the operation, 
but the likelihood of success and the, the pain of the and, and struggles through the unlikely recovery, it's better for us to manage how you're feeling and let you live life as best you can. And so the concept, even though it wasn't really called palliative care then, um, and caring for people as more than objects, as, as, as being heroes, whether you're a doctor, whether you're a politician, or whether you're anything, um, I think is, was deeply ingrained in who I am. And, and also a sense of justice. Um, his medical group, um, the doctors at the hospital each year, there's a medical dinner, just like there's often in businesses, an annual party. Well, they were going to have the, the annual dinner at an exclusive country club in, in Brookline, Massachusetts, a country club that would not have otherwise let him in as a Jewish man. And uh, he organized the doctors and, you know, and said to the Association of Doctors, you know, we should not go there for our dinner when they don't let most people in, um, not just Jewish people, but people of color and otherwise. And he organized that uh, sort of boycott of that dinner and got the dinner moved away from what is one of the most prestigious country clubs in the country. Um, and so it's that sense of value about uh, justice being served beyond your economic wealth or your economic opportunity that uh, was deeply ingrained in me from both of my parents. Uh, my mom on the schools helped form the after-school programs that at that time didn't exist. And that was for a number of reasons, uh, particularly around the, the, ter- the term then called latchkey kids, where they'd get home and nobody was home because women were going to work. And so essentially, you know, it could be termed looking back as a very feminist action to form after-school programs so that women weren't sort of obligated to be home uh, and or working-class families weren't obligated to have kids going home to empty houses with no guidance. Uh, And so she worked really hard to form after-school programs, which then really expanded all over the country. That was back in the the 70s. Um, And just to add to the personal story, this last February when we had our service for my mom who passed away on New Year's Day a year ago, um, we had it at, at one of the schools in the town that I grew up in and uh, a school that she helped fight for the bond to build that new school at the time to replace a really old, decrepit school in the more working-class part of town. And it was a real fight because the wealthier parts of town weren't interested in supporting it. But these kids needed a new school. Well, in that school was the after-school program. And when my sister went to look at the space in the cafeteria, uh, one of the older teachers in the school went, wait a minute. And she ran and got a piece of paper with the uh, the uh, header of the paper was a kid playing marbles across a line that you know divided the top inch of the paper from the rest of the paper with the address of the school on the top right and the kid on the bottom on the top left and said uh, you know that's that's your brother this after school program's uh, you know moniker was uh, was your brother so that was me with my bowl cut playing marbles uh, and it's still being used in that school system today and um, excuse me tearing up a little right now even just talking about it but um, you know, those, those values that my family uh, raised me with, which was that uh, essentially with privilege comes responsibility and that we aren't uh, successful just by our own merits. Uh, we become more successful by how hard we work, uh, no matter what class you're raised in, what your circumstances are. If you work hard, you ought to be able to work your way up the ladder. But statistics are clear. Whichever economic bracket you're in, you could do better in that bracket. But pretty rarely, very rarely, do you jump from bracket to bracket economically. And it's important to recognize I've been fortunate in starting a business and a farm and been successful with that. I've been fortunate in running for office and been successful in that. Uh, But that success is not derived solely from my own uh, incredibleness and skills and talents. Doors are open to me that weren't open to other people. Um, Having a small supportive down payment from my parents or from my mom to buy a duplex in Burlington as I was ending college, one that I then managed and I lived in, but I had very low housing expenses because I could rent rooms to other people, afforded me the opportunity to start the farm and have marginal income for a number of years, afforded me to stick my neck out and run for office in my 20s because my housing costs were much smaller because I had roommates paying, helping pay mortgage and insurance uh, on that property. You know, when the door is open with just a little bit of help, um, it, it, 
it makes so many opportunities available. And I think we have to recognize that just saying to people, hey, work harder, you'll make it. Um, it, it it's an unfair uh, burden and expectation. Is it important to say work hard? Yes. Is it important to say if you're able, we ought to be a part of our society uh, in the economic system? Absolutely. But when we're saddling kids with the kind of debt they have coming out of college today that they didn't have as a percentage of their income 10, 20, 40 years ago, um, it's an unfair burden to say, oh, you're failing because you're not working hard enough, which is essentially what we tell people um, when we say pull yourself up by your bootstrap or do it yourself. If you don't make it, it's your fault. You're a failure. That's not the values I was raised with. I was raised with, uh, with privilege comes responsibility. And some of that responsibility is making sure doors are open for everybody to have access to education, to opportunity, uh, to the skills they need to, to thrive in, and, and just survive, no less, in our future. Um, Let me ask, how did you get into politics? Well, actually... Back to my mom being on the school board, I actually thought I'm never getting in politics. I never, you know, not never, but I didn't see my mom as much. She had, you know, not only the main school board meetings, either once a week or every other week, once, you know, in the evening, but subcommittee meetings and organizing meetings and trying to get things done meetings. And I thought, why would you just be away all the time at night? Um, but ultimately, back in 92, as a student at UVM, uh, I'd been there for a year and a half and um, was studying and I was active on campus on a number of issues. And I thought, you know, politics was uh, sold out, you know, too much corporate money already. Um, I wasn't enthralled. I certainly didn't really espouse many of the principles the Republican Party was doing. And um, the Democratic Party was fighting for the better sides of the issue, but still, I thought, coming up short on some of the issues around the environment and climate, around economic justice issues. It just wasn't quite there. Um, there was good good talk and good principles, but the issues are being addressed so incrementally, and I just thought the corporate money controls this. They're not letting the policies move in the way they need to move to really improve people's lives, take on the criminal injustice system, the war on drugs. You know, all these things were just, it was about money, you know, the, the corporate money in prisons. Uh, and then there was this guy that came to campus running for, I think, his first re-election to Congress, uh, Senator, now Senator, candidate for president, Bernie Sanders. And I was one of those uh, in 1992. I guess I was uh, turning 21 that year. Um, and I thought, wow, here is someone who is not taking corporate donations, who wears his politics on his sleeve, who's fighting for the things I care about. I'm going to check this guy out. And I ended up volunteering on his campaign, uh, myself generally leading, but a lot of other folks working on tabling and door knocking on campus. We registered over a thousand students to vote that year for that general election. And um, through volunteering for Bernie, I met folks who were involved in affordable housing, in criminal justice reform, in uh, GLBTQA rights and equality movement, uh, minimum wage battles, universal health care. All these folks who were supporting Bernie were incredible members of our community who were living their lives working for these issues. And it wasn't just about elected office and getting someone elected at the top. It was also about organizing and working day to day to, to address these struggles. And uh, through meeting those folks, I got involved in, in the progressive coalition movement. And uh, a few years later, they asked me to run. Um, and I did. I'll admit, I was actually a little naive at the time. I ran against one of the most progressive Democrats that was uh, in office at the time to try to unseat uh, Sandy Baird. And I've, uh, uh, I've looked back on that as a, as a moment of naivete and um, probably not the best decision at the time. She won, um, but it was a, a full-on race. We all came within a handful of votes of each other. Uh, but it also taught me to sort of look at the situation and not just um, – look and say, oh, I can do it better than whoever else is there. And, and as people come to me to look at running, I say, well, who would you be running against? Are they doing a reasonably good job? Could you help them do a better job? Or should you be running to unseat them? What is the situation in each and every race? What is the situation in each and every conversation? How do you move the conversation in a way that's productive? Uh, and so a lot of those lessons were learned in that first race that I did lose. Uh, and I didn't just learn the lessons because I lost. I learned the lessons because I reflected on what happened. And, um, and that's, you know, then I did run a couple years later. She did not run for re-election. I was fortunate enough to win. And uh, the rest has been sort of good fortune, luck, and hard work. Uh, I did grow up. There's a poster on the wall of our kitchen growing up uh, that was, and I, I need to look it up who to attribute it to because it's someone else's quote, which is, 
Behold the turtle who only makes progress when it sticks its neck out. And um, I know the pros and cons of that because we had a pond growing up and we had some snapping turtles and occasionally we would catch the turtle and my mom would, uh, let's just say, take care of that turtle by getting it to stick its neck out because that's what you got to do. So you you can suffer the consequences for sticking your neck out. On the other hand, unless you put yourself out there and unless you have, in some cases, the privilege to be able to do so, and therefore the responsibility to do so, we're not going to make progress. And you got to stick it out there and say, I think it's important to invest in our economic future. I think it's important to ask our wealthy folks, for a few years, can you invest in a climate future that's going to make a future for our kids? Uh, can we fight for the minimum wage that some people are going to attack me for? Uh, you know, can, can we fight for uh, more affordable housing uh, against you know, some people saying we can or can't do things? Um, marriage equality, GMOs, end-of-life choices. You know, I've stuck my neck out on a lot of issues. And uh, fortunately, in organizing with people around the state, uh, they've resonated and those folks have organized and gotten other legislative colleagues to support them. Uh, And we've moved many of these issues successfully. And I hope we can do so again so that we have a future for our kids. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're spending the hour with Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, who's announced this week that he is running for governor. So, David, picking up on that theme of, uh, I don't know if it's the turtle sticking its neck out or uh, picking uh, a very tough race as your first one and it not working out, uh, you know the odds here in Vermont. 60 years since Vermonters have voted to turn out an incumbent governor um, for whatever reason, and maybe you can speculate your thoughts on why we love our incumbents. We let them have the job essentially until they're bored of it. Uh, and decide not to run again. And Governor Phil Scott has proven to be a formidable uh, campaigner who um, still, by all accounts, seems to be fairly popular. What's your strategy for uh, both winning a primary against Rebecca Holcomb and defeating an incumbent governor? Well, I think it's important to note, uh, while we haven't done it in 60 years, I think Howard Dean uh, won by a whisker in 2000. Uh, Peter Shumlin had a very close race. And relative to the current governor, uh, it's important to note, he did win by 12% last time. And so people sort of touted that as a mandate. Uh, But in reality, he actually got 52.1% of the vote. It is not a massive majority sweeping mandate that uh, some people have interpreted the 12% victory as. Uh, I think the governor has done a very good job of reacting to the the national climate and has appeased a number of Vermonters um, with respect to uh, good words around the climate. When the president pulled out of the the Paris Climate Accord, the governor said, we're going to follow the accord. Well, the reality is that was a good thing to say, but our carbon emissions have gone up under this governor, not down. Uh, So I think one of the things I'm going to be doing is pointing out where words and actions don't necessarily flow together. Uh, The governor talked about affordability, and that's an appropriate thing to talk about. I think we talked a little bit about that earlier as to what drives the affordability challenges. And with our incomes at 18% below the the average, uh, if he's going to be in the way of raising the minimum wage in a methodical, responsible way, to make Vermont more affordable for working class people, I think that's going to resonate with a lot of folks. You know, raising it to $15 an hour over a few years is going to put thousands of dollars. You know, it's important to remember, 50 cents an hour, if you work full time, about 2,000 hours a year, that's $1,000 in a working person's pocket. I ask listeners who are living on the minimum wage or living on the margins, if you had $1,000 more next year, would you be a little more comfortable and being able to pay your electric bills, pay your gas bills, put a little food on the table, maybe even have something to buy a gift for your kid for Christmas or birthday or that next size gift, just that one thing that they really wanted. I think that's significant. I think 80,000 Vermonters looking over the next three to four years going, I would see an increase in my pay that would make my life more affordable. I think that's an important message that's going to resonate. Those two issues are really big. Uh, I think the climate crisis and really saying, you know what, we have to address the climate crisis. We need to ask our wealthier Vermonters to invest in our future. Like I said, whether it's weatherization, which is present jobs and future savings for working Vermonters, uh, broadband, which is uh, expanding job opportunities in rural areas, 
that is going to be very appealing to a lot of people who are thinking about our future and our climate and our planet and our farms and our kids. Uh, so I think there's an opportunity there. I do think the turnout in 2020 is going to be significant. Uh, the, the current energy and recognition that participating in democracy matters. Uh, too many people sat on their hands last time, not necessarily in Vermont, but across this country. And we've ended up with this demagogue, uh, this, this selfish uh, beast as a president. Um, he is our president. I will call him president. Uh, but his respect for the institution and how it's supposed to work, his respect for working with people across the aisle uh, is non-existent. Um, I will point out that I have worked with people of all parties regularly uh, since I first got into the legislature. Uh, the first uh, medical cannabis laws, we actually passed through a Republican House and through a Republican governor. Uh, I was leading that charge. You can't do that if you don't work with people from the other parties. And I have many other examples uh, like that. I've reached out to the current governor to work on education and human services and reducing our, our cost in government, making government more efficient. The fact that he chose not to work with me or ask me how we could work together and show people that a Republican and non-Republican work can work together, um, I think that's unfortunate. Um, I think he's well-intentioned. I think it's in his heart and soul to work with people. Uh, but I also think he's hired people that are giving him bad advice. And uh, in the end, unfortunately, that bad advice uh, gets carried out by and carried uh, as, as and put forth by the governor himself. Uh, and I think that's too bad because I, I do really like Phil Scott personally uh, and certainly campaigning. I will talk about these things as facts and actions, not as um, uh, sort of disruptions on his character, uh, because I think he's an extraordinarily decent human being. How he handled the protesters last week at the State of the State address. Uh, he and I had talked. He wanted to give them their opportunity to speak their voice and be a part of democracy. I think that deserves great kudos. And he and I had worked out that when he gave me the signal to do my job as a presiding officer, I would say, you know, it's, it's time to restore order to the chamber and, and make sure the governor gets to present his remarks and his vision and his statement. And, and uh, I think we did that well together. Um, but I think appealing to uh, Vermonters saying is, is uh, sort of inaction and good words enough for what the state needs or to care for our most vulnerable, as our governor talks about, doesn't mean really working with the Department of Corrections and saying, wait a minute, we need to have standards in our Department of Corrections so that our vulnerable inmates who have no power uh, are not abused by rogue correctional officers. Most of our state workers are amazing. Most of our correctional workers are reasonable and decent people. But clearly, something didn't go right with respect to either the standards of employment, the training practices, or the monitoring of our employees to make sure our inmates are uh, treated uh, properly while they're incarcerated. Uh, these, are, these are issues that people care about. As you've noted, or as anyone who's paying attention noticed, these are incredibly toxic and volatile political times. How do you see that trickling down to Vermont? And how is that going to, do you think that's going to be a part of the race, whether it's outside money and groups that are pouring in? Um, what do you see the effect here? Well, I, I have no doubt that um, this race will be unlike any that I've ever run before. Certainly in the lieutenant governor race, uh, including the, the primary in 16, that um, some would argue I would not have been expected to win, that I pulled out by working with people all across the state uh, in a grassroots way. Uh, but none of my races for lieutenant governor have had the scale of sort of toxic impact that I think the scale of a governor's race or the congressional races typically garner. And I do believe that uh, the, the pundits will say this is a lean Republican race, but they'll say it's a competitive race. And as soon as they say it's competitive, then those with the resources to do so are going to pour money in. And the question is, are they going to pour money in in the way that Vermonters expect with respect and dignity for the office, respect and dignity for the office holders and the, and the candidates? Uh, it'll be interesting to see what ultimately happens. Um, I will certainly say as a candidate that if, if uh, I win the primary and I am running against Governor Scott in the general election, I will make it clear that I would hope anybody out there who is spending money to try to help me get elected uh, would do it in a way that is uh, factual, that is respectful. Uh, we can present facts about the things we dislike about how things are happening in a respectful way. Um, we don't need the deep voice with the gray, shady overtones and the, did you know that so-and-so did such-and-such? 
We don't need those kinds of campaigns. That's not what we want in Vermont. And I, I hope and think the governor would expect and want the same from those who are doing uh, work on, on his behalf, or not on his behalf, but in support of his campaign. And technically, we can't tell them what to do. Um, but in the end, I think we should each be held responsible. If, if people supporting us aren't going to listen to us, uh, when we say be respectful and be factual, um, then that's a reflection on who is then supporting us. And should we then be beholden to people that are supporting us who don't believe in the respect and dignity that not only we as individuals deserve, but ultimately these offices and our government and our democracy deserve. And so um, I'll be putting that message out over and over again and certainly asking anybody who supports me to do it in a respectful way. And that includes in the social media troll world. You know, there are people posting on, you know, my campaign Facebook page and in ways that they can and want sort of, oh, puke, that guy's running, that's awful. And someone else will, who supports me will say something negative back and say, you know what, say, you know, I hope you could express your views more positively next time. But we don't need to attack each other, even in social media. Well, Lieutenant Governor David Zuckerman, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this in all shows at vermontconversation.com. Stay tuned for next week, next Wednesday. We'll have another Vermont Conversation Wednesday at 1. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening. The Vermont Conversation with David Goodman. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Green Mountain Power, delivering clean, cost effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. The Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable child care in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. Concept 2, designers and manufacturers of Concept 2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club and nearly 700 business members of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit.